Hear the word of God. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. Thus ends a reading of God's word. May the grass wither and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stand forever. Amen? Amen. You can have a seat. It was 1987 and... Uh, and I was a young elder at Covenant Presbyterian Church in Palm Bay, Florida, and my pastor was Dan Henley. And we were in a new church building, and, and the church was growing like wildfire. We were gaining 100 new members every year. And one of my jobs as a young elder was to interview new members. So one sat Sunday afternoon, uh, another elder and I were interviewing a, a lady named Mary Ann. Her husband, Keith, was being interviewed in another room at the same time. And so I started that interview the same way I've started hundreds of those new member interviews and asked the same question I always ask, which is, can you start by giving us a two to three minute short version of your testimony with Christ and your church background? And Marianne burst into tears. And she cried for a minute. And in the midst of her tears, she said, I don't have a testimony. I've always believed in Christ. And I was like, wow. Well, beloved, let me tell you, that's a great testimony. 
And, and I immediately began to reassure her that she actually had a real testimony, and that was it. That's her testimony, that God is so gracious to her that she could never remember a day of not believing in Christ, and that, that you don't have to be a rebel or a drunkard or be in the Marines far from home to find Jesus, that you can grow up in the church and actually believe. Imagine God placing you in a loving Christian family, getting baptized as an infant, and growing into an adult who has never doubted, who has always believed the gospel, and has never turned away. Now that's incredible, isn't it? Well, what a work of grace in Marianne's life. Maybe some of you also have that testimony. Well, we're at the end of our sermon series, Encounters with Jesus, and, and so Saul, also called Paul, encounters the risen Christ. We, we just read the story, and of course, he never forgot this. Who, who would? In fact, it was the foundation of his witness to the world. He carried this story all over the Roman Empire. Here, here is what Christ has done for me. That's what he told kings. That's what he told jailers. That's what he told prisoners. Here's what Christ has done for me and in, in me. That's what Jesus does. And so Paul's testimony is in the book of Acts three times. It's in our chapter today, chapter 9. It's also in chapter 2 and chapter 26. Obviously, he shared it everywhere. Because you see, the good news of Jesus Christ is not just some philosophical argument that we argue with other people? Or, or is it a list of laws to be followed? No, no, the gospel is a living relationship with a loving God and Savior who works individually and corporately together to save and bless a sinful world. So it's appropriate that this is our last sermon in the series, I think, and, and I feel blessed to teach it. And to preach it because you see each of us has a unique story and if you've learned nothing else in this series of sermons then get this an encounter with Jesus will change you it will either make you harder and more rebellious against God or it will save you from yourself and sanctify you as you receive grace there's no middle ground with Christ You'll either get harder or you'll get softer. So here's our takeaway today. Here's what I want you to get. That every believer has a testimony of Christ's grace that is worth sharing with somebody else. Every believer has a testimony of Christ's grace that is worth sharing with somebody else. You know, several weeks ago, we, uh, ben Weber started a, a short Sunday school class on evangelism on Sunday mornings at nine, and he gave us a testimony worksheet in our evangelism Sunday school. It looks like this. You should find it in your bulletin this morning. So I gave you that handout so that you can use it. Because you see, evangelism is simply sharing good news, and there's no easier way to do it than with your own testimony telling people what Christ has done for you and in you. So that's the application of today's sermon, is for you to consider Christ's work of grace in your life, for you to respond with joy and thanksgiving, and maybe 
do your homework, and prepare to share your testimony. So I want you to keep that close. In this, in this testimony worksheet, there are five questions on that worksheet. And so I've built my sermon around Paul's answer to those questions. I know that disappoints you that it's not a three-point sermon. It's today, it's a five-point sermon, and we're just going to use these five questions from the testimony worksheet to look at this passage together. So question number one, what was I like before Christ? Well, I was raised in the Presbyterian church. My father was an elder, and my mother was the church organist. We were in church a lot. I remember going with her before school, even in preschool days, when she would go and practice the organ. She would take me with her, and we would drive through a little Jiffy hamburger joint as a treat back when there were 19-cent hamburgers. I remember in the fifth grade, we had these two old men that looked like me now. They seemed really ancient, and they, they taught us the shorter catechism, and they made a contest out of memorizing the shorter catechism, and Jit Giesel and I were the only ones who, who finished the course. The rest of the ruffians in my class didn't finish. And, and I remember in high school, we were in a really big church. It had a tremendous youth ministry. 150 kids were in youth group, and it had double services, and every, every week, the youth choir sang at the Sunday, the early service, and I loved to sing, so I was there. I was churched, but for me, it was a social and music club. I, I was not interested in Christ or the Bible or the gospel. I was interested in Jim, moi, me. I, I was a rebellious middle child who was hard on his parents. I was terrible in school. I don't think in high school I ever took a single book home. And I was interested only in what pleased me. I barely, just barely got into college as a legacy. Well, Paul was also raised religiously. He, except it was the Jewish synagogue and he was not disinterested. In fact, he was exceptionally bright he was devoted to God, and, and he was in the strictest set of the Pharisees. He was into the Bible and into God's Word. He was a serious student of the Scriptures, and he was, as a young man, moving up the rabbi chain faster than his peers. And so Paul believed that Jesus was a false prophet, and, and, and so he persecuted the church unto death. As we read about this morning, Paul was willing to arrest and kill fellow Jews in the name of God because they followed this false prophet named Jesus. And some would say that Paul was a religious zealot, but, but the Jewish zealots were fighting against Rome. Paul was more like a, a majority whip in Congress. His, uh, he, he was a henchman. His, his, he was on the second tier of leadership. And his job was to keep the troops in line, and he was willing to do anything to keep God's people from following a false prophet, including killing his own brothers and sisters in the Lord. Now, if you look around the church, if you look around the world today, Christianity is the most persecuted religion in the world. 
And all persecution comes from false religion, and it was no different than Paul. So here's your first moment. Get your pen out. Write down a note or a sentence and answer that first question. At least think about it. What was I like before Christ? Write down what you were interested in, what kind of person you were, whether you were interested in the gospel at all. Or just look at me and don't write anything. <laughs> that, that's another option always. You'll pay for that later in the sermon though, I promise you. <laughs> Question number two. What did God use to open my eyes? I graduated from Ballard High School in Louisville, Kentucky in 1978. This summer is my 45th reunion. That summer, I worked full-time at a Ford dealership as a car jockey, saving my money for college. I was lonely and bored, and I, would, I wouldn't do anything about it all week, and then on Friday night when I'd get home from work, I'd call friends to see if they, had any, if they wanted to hang out, or I'd call on Saturday night, and what I found out is that they already had plans. And so I often had nothing to do, and I would sit home I, I, I was such a loser that I went to see the movie Star Wars with my parents. It, it, was, it was pathetic. I, I think I had one date that whole summer, and it was with my best friend Sally. And uh, I think we went to see the movie Grease. It was fun. I was really lonely, and Christ was getting me ready in my loneliness. Because if you, if you know me at all, you know that I'm a social person and loneliness was really hard on me. Well, the Apostle Paul was converted miraculously. We already read that, but I think you can see in the scriptures how God was getting Paul ready. Paul was already experiencing doubts about religious Pharisaism and about serious law-keeping. Put Romans 7 up there on the screen if you would. Look at this. He later wrote this in Romans. He said, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Paul expected the Ten Commandments, like every law keeper, he expected the Ten Commandments to work for his holiness. But his own experience with that law was that it had no power over his heart. He could keep it externally and look good. In fact, he would have described himself as blameless according to the law. But on the inside, he was envious. And, and, and he realized that he was a lawbreaker and a hypocrite even. Because what he preached was not happening on the inside. And he was feeling that conflict already when he encountered Christ. And you combine that with Paul's belief as a Pharisee and the hope of the resurrection. And he was getting ready theologically and experientially to follow Christ. To find a way to overcome this terror in his own heart. And so then right before his conversion, Paul also heard a great sermon. You know, great sermons can have a great effect if you pay attention. 
Paul, Paul, Paul heard a great sermon from the uh, preached in the book of Acts by the, uh, the deacon Phil, uh, Stephen. It's in the previous couple chapters. You can read it on your own, but I want to get to the end of it and show you the catch at the end. This is what happened to Stephen. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, whenever Jesus wanted to make it plain that he was God's son, that he was claiming to be deity, that he was equal with the Father, he would call himself the Son of Man. It's really ironic because you would think he'd call himself the Son of God, but the title Son of God was already used as a messianic title for the Son of David. So the Son of Man was a reference that's dropped into Daniel 7 in a small passage that you've probably rarely read and barely understood, and here it is. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. The most frequent mistake about this passage is people think it's the second coming. It's the ascension. Jesus received his kingdom at the ascension after the resurrection. And so here we see that the Bible calls Jesus the Son of Man. It's a reference to his co-reign with the Ancient of Days. It was this title, Son of Man, that enraged the Pharisees. And if you go back and read those passages, you'll see that that's what got him killed. Is a reference to himself as a son of man and actually a reference to this passage that they would see the son of man coming with great glory. And so when, when Stephen connected that in his sermon to Jesus, that enraged Saul and the other Jewish leaders and they stoned him. But I think it also served Saul to get him ready because it was all coming together before he met Jesus on the road. So what did God use? Question number two, what did God use to begin to open your eyes? Make a note, write a sentence, write a word, at least think about it. What did God use to begin to open your eyes to the gospel? All right, you ready? Question number three, what was it that I came to understand in my thinking that prepared me for Christ? Well, that summer of 1978, when I was so lonely and working as a car, a car jockey, at the beginning of August, my boss came to me at the Ford dealership and he asked me to drive his demo, his, it was an TD. They don't make those anymore. It was a boat of a car. And uh, it was nice to drive. And he asked me to come to drive it, to take his car and drive across Louisville to, to the west side and to pick up some glass there at a glass shop for the body shop. Now I was 17 and he looked at me and he said, 
you're not going to wreck my car, are you? And I said, no, I won't wreck it. And so as I got in the car, I heard the voice. And the voice said to me, Jim, today you need to wear your seatbelt. Now, I don't know if the voice was in my head or if it was in the car. But the voice said, Jim, today you need to wear your seatbelt. And you got to know, those of you who are young, that in 1978, nobody but Ralph Nader wore their seatbelt. <laughs> so I listened to the voice, and I put on my seatbelt, and I was in a terrible wreck across town. It wasn't my fault, by the way. And, and I would have been launched through the windshield without that seatbelt. Instead, I was saved. Seven weeks later at Center College of Kentucky, Dave Fackler from Asbury Seminary was there on Friday afternoon visiting some friends from church, and he shared the gospel with me, and I was overcome with the grace of Christ, and I prayed the sinner's prayer. It all came together for me on that Friday, September 29th, 1978, that Jesus is Lord and that I belong to him. So Paul's eyes were opened miraculously on the road to Damascus, and then just as quickly they were closed as a sign of judgment for his unbelief and his persecution of the church. In John chapter 9, Jesus heals a man born blind on the Sabbath, and this leads to quite a bit of controversy. It's a long story, and you can read it on your own. You should read it. It's quite good. And here's the small part of it, John 9, verse 39. Jesus said, for judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. That's what we call the gospel reversal. When everything we expect to happen doesn't, and what is unexpected does. The people, the very people that we are sure are the insiders, proved to be false, and the outsiders are gathered into the kingdom. Jesus says to the Pharisees, the prostitutes and the tax collectors enter the kingdom before you do. And so, verse 40, some of the Pharisees near Jesus heard these things, and they said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. So on that road to Damascus, Jesus appeared to, to Paul in an overwhelmingly bright light, and then as a sign of judgment, made him blind. Because Paul was blaspheming and persecuting the church in God's name. And the church is the bride of Jesus. And Jesus took this quite personally and said, why are you persecuting me? And judgment comes before salvation. And so Paul was blind for three days, like Jonah in the belly of the whale, like Jesus in the belly of the earth. And and here's what he says about it in Acts 26. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. 
Now, I don't know how bright a light has to be to see it at midday, but it's got to be really bright to overcome the brightness of the noonday sun in the Middle East. Jesus overwhelmed Paul with a light brighter than the sun. And Paul knew immediately that Jesus was Lord. Did you notice that? And he realized that instead of helping God with his persecution, he was actually fighting against God. And Jesus says, don't fight me. This is useless, like a farm animal, kicking against the goads. Beloved, you can't beat God, so it's useless to try. So Paul changed sides. That's a pretty wise move, I'd say. So Paul was sent to Ananias. His eyes were opened, and he was baptized, and he found out his purpose in life as the apostle to the Gentiles. How ironic, isn't it? Paul hated the Gentiles as a good Jew. He would never have chosen this mission for himself. And now all his theological excellence would be used to help write the New Testament. That's incredible, isn't it? Here's what he says in Acts 26 and verse 16. But rise and stand. He's telling his story to the king. Rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to point you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. You see right there, he tells Paul, he's going to tell his testimony everywhere. Delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now that is purpose in life, isn't it? What what an amazing thing he was being called to do. Instead of fighting the gospel, he was going to be the chief emissary around the world. Now, I know, beloved, you're thinking, well, I'm not an apostle. How how does this apply to me? Well, you don't have to be an apostle to be called of God and to have purpose in life and to know what your purpose is and to be fruitful for God's glory. Look at this from John 15. Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. We sang that this morning. I'm chosen, not forsaken. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should last. You know, the fruit we bear as believers in the lives of somebody else is eternal fruit. It's fruit that lasts. It doesn't go away. It doesn't dissipate. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another, he says in the next verse. So that you will love one another. Wherever you work or live, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer in Jesus, God has called you to bear eternal fruit for his glory through prayer and love, boldly sharing with people what God has done for you and why it matters for them, what difference it can make for them just as it's made for you. Not while you argue with them or petition against them, 
but while you share life together. The religions of men, they tell you that all you must do to impress God, laying out a list of rules or things you have to do, but the gospel you see is about what Christ has done to deliver us and make us acceptable to God. So question number three, what is it that you have come to understand about Christ? Make a note, write a sentence, think about it. What comes to your mind? What was it that you came to understand? You ready? Question number four. How have you responded to what you understood about Christ and your need for him? How I responded to what I understood about Christ and my need for him, if you personalize it. Now, it's 1978. After praying, it's September, and I'm at college, and after praying the sinner's prayer, I got off my knees of that uh, college dorm floor, and David, my, my new friend David Fackler from the seminary, David and I and a couple other guys went to the fraternity houses where I normally went, and instead of drinking beer to excess, I, uh, I went to the bar and I ordered a lemonade. And, uh, and I began to share my testimony with my classmates, often while we danced. I, I hadn't given up dancing. You don't have to do that. It was the, dis it was the disco era. Come on. <laughs> you don't have to give up dancing. I danced and shared the gospel at the same time. That's how you do it. And all that stuff I had heard and learned in church when I didn't care suddenly came bubbling out of me as I eagerly told my friends what I had found in Christ, my newfound forgiveness, my purpose, the peace and joy that I was experiencing when I had been a driftless teenager. My, my friends were amazed at the change in me and and by spring, I was in a church playing the piano and helping to lead worship, reading my Bible voraciously and witnessing boldly. Paul began his ministry immediately as a, a, a believer in Christ. And he went to tell his testimony in the synagogues of Damascus before he'd even left town. And he was proclaiming that Jesus was the Messiah and the Jews couldn't handle it. And so his friends, of course, were all amazed. And now he had new friends in the church and everybody was confused because he had gone from persecutor to proclaimer in just a few days. And he was so affected that the Jews plotted to kill him and he had to sneak out of town. And so he ran back to Jerusalem and when he got there and began to preach, he, he began to be threatened in Jerusalem as well. So he had to run again back home to Tarsus in Arabia where he stayed for three years studying the scriptures to, to find out all that it taught about Jesus in the Old Testament so that he could then preach the word. You know, it's interesting to me that the 12 had three years with Jesus interactively. And, 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 and so Paul was given that same gift, three years to prepare and to get ready. And what Paul found in that three years is contained in the letters in the New Testament. And especially in, in the book of Romans. And he came to understand how the sin that we experience in Adam is all redeemed in Christ. And that our sins are forgiven past, 
present and future. Isn't that incredible grace? And he came to understand that although the law doesn't give you power over sin, the work of Christ does. That apart from Christ, you can't keep the Ten Commandments. And he, <coughs> he realized that we're free from our slavery to sin and self. No more curse. What incredible good news. Here's what he wrote in Romans 8. Romans 7, you find the struggle he was having under the law of Moses with sin. And here's Romans 8. There is therefore now, now, beloved, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Paul found as a believer in Christ that there was love and joy and peace, the fruit of the Spirit, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. This is real freedom, not autonomy, not what our culture is seeking, but freedom bound, wrapped up in Christ. And, and, And a kingdom in which the thief is given a job so that they steal no more. Where the depressed are given joy where, where the liar is given integrity. Where the lonely are given an, a, a new family, and it's an eternal family at that. And, and the envious, even the envious, are given satisfaction. That's what he found. Th- this freedom, this love of Christ compelled Paul to go wherever necessary to share the same grace that he had experienced. Is this how you're responding to the work of God in your life? Compelled by the love of Christ for you to share your testimony with anyone and everyone. Sharing the beauty of Christ at work. And sharing the beauty of Christ with your neighbors. And sharing the beauty of Christ at the gym. Or or even the coffee shop. Paul never tired of sharing his testimony. It's woven throughout the New Testament. Here's a small chunk in 1 Timothy 1. Verse 13, he says, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Verse 16. But I received mercy for this reason. Listen to this. I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost opponent of the gospel, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. This is the work of grace that God was doing in the Apostle Paul. Not only had he providentially seen to his training, strict training in the scriptures, But he had allowed him to become the chief persecutor of the church so that he could save him from himself and make him the chief proponent of grace and the gospel. Isn't that amazing? How he turned it all around so that you and I know that if Paul can be saved, anybody can be saved. You know, last week 
Pastor Andrew showed us how doubting Thomas became believing Thomas by personally seeing Jesus' scars. But you see, Thomas was the friend of Jesus. Paul was his enemy. If, if Jesus will save Paul, a man who murdered fellow Jews who followed Jesus, then he will save anyone, beloved, even you and even me. This is why we share our testimony boldly. Because we don't know who will believe. It's not up to us to decide. And many times those who seem hardest to the gospel are the ones that come to faith. That's, that's what even makes it interesting. And sharing your testimony and witnessing for Christ is not optional. Like chores in a household, it's everybody's duty. Here's what Jesus says, Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. That's what it's like when you don't share your testimony and you keep it to yourself as a lifestyle. It's like lighting a lamp and paying the electric bill and nobody ever sees the light. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Paul tells Philemon that sharing your faith will increase your knowledge of Christ's work in you. That's such a good thing. How have you responded to your need for Christ? Number four. How have you responded? That's the question we're answering. How have you responded to your need for Christ? Make a note. Write down a sentence or a word. Think about it. What has Christ done? How have you responded to what you understood about Christ? Question number four. You ready? Question number five. How is Christ affecting your life? How is Christ affecting your life. Well, when I came to faith, I was a new person. New heart, new attitude, new purpose. Now, now I still cussed for a while. I was still a little cocky. Maybe a lot cocky. But, but what changed is that I was no longer addicted to myself and my own interests. I, I wanted to know Jesus and I wanted to be like him in every way. And, and to become like him, to be a servant to others. And this part of the gospel is so good that half measures were never enough for me. When Christ invades your life, you can no longer live only for yourself. You are set free from sin and self-interest to imitate Christ in loving and serving others. So Jesus was kind enough to give me a wife so that I could learn to love, to show me that I'm selfish and self-interested and give me a pathway of sanctification day by day that you can't ever escape it in marriage. And so he gives us marriage to sanctify us. He gave her to me, gave me Sherry also as my greatest encourager because everybody needs encouragement. Then he gave me children to show me that I was still selfish. You know, you learn this in bits. The Lord doesn't throw it all on you at once. So I got children and I learned that I was, well, I hadn't overcome as much selfishness as I thought. Couldn't go to the movies anymore. Couldn't run out on a quick date. You're stuck at home changing diapers. 
giving bottles, and the worst part, giving discipline when it breaks your heart to do it. And you know, my kids are such a delight. It's joy that he gives you. Jesus gives us the church. Now, now you step outside your little tribe and you find out you're still selfish and that other people pick the songs and, and, uh, and other people pick everything going on at the church. You have to volunteer to have any control at all which is a good reason to volunteer. <laughs> and, and, and how much we need to learn to love, right? Um, Gary Larson, has the, from the far side, has this great little picture about two porcupines dancing at the, ball, the porcupine ball, and they're going, ouch, ouch, ouch. And uh, that's a great picture of life in the church. <laughs> we, we were... We were made for community, beloved, and Christ changes you so that you are a loving part of this church. And we are working together to advance God's visible kingdom. And Jesus said that people will know we're his disciples by our love for one another. It's a love test. It always has been. And you know, hermits don't have to learn patience, but church folk do. And, and, and Facebook and YouTube churchgoers, I know there's some watching right now. Facebook and YouTube churchgoers are missing the blessing of getting along with other saints. And, and you know, I've met people, I don't know if you've met them, but they say, I, I, I'm okay with Jesus. I dig Jesus, but the church, no. And I think, okay, I hear that. You want to be Jim's friend, but you don't like Sherry. Well, I would take that personally. I don't know about you. I'm pretty sure Jesus takes that attitude personally, like Paul on the road to Damascus. You can't love Jesus and hate his wife. Doesn't work. You might think you can, but you can't. And what about those yucky people on the outside of the church, you know? who don't believe the gospel and seem to annoy us by their differing values and politics. Well, guess what? God loves them too. And, and in fact, before coming to faith, every one of us was one of those yucky people on the outside. And we were enemies of the gospel, just like Paul. So if you love them, you will share your testimony with them so that they have a way out of yuckiness, just like you found a way out. Think about Paul. As a religious zealot, he was willing to kill others in God's name. False religion is where all persecution comes from. As a believer in Christ, listen now, Paul was willing to die for others. Now that is a remarkable change. Think about that. He went from killing others in the name of God to being willing to die for others because of the work that Christ was doing inside of him. Here it is in Romans 9. He says it very clearly. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. What an incredible reversal. What a difference Christ made in the life of his people. It's, uh, it's so good. So what difference has he made in your life? Make a note. 
Write it down. Think about it. Are you ready to share yet? What God has been doing in youth in the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the bad news. Maybe Christ hasn't made a difference yet in your life. Maybe you don't see it as we ask these questions. Maybe you can't answer these questions yet, at least not all of them. You're still apart from Christ. You're on the sideline of the kingdom of God, left outside like an orphan and an enemy, struggling to make your own way through life, still a slave to sin and your own self-interest. That's a heavy load. And so I would just encourage you to put that load down and put your hope and life in Christ today. That's the pathway of peace and security and joy and love. Or maybe, just maybe, you're churched and you can answer these questions, but you don't really see the need to fill out your testimony form or to be one of these pushy Christians sharing their faith at the coffee shop. Maybe that's you. Well, I can tell you very clearly that you're living in disobedience and you're missing one of the greatest blessings in life, helping someone find eternal life. It's better than curing cancer. That's the kind of fruit and joy that Jesus promises to praying Christians who love their neighbor as themselves. Now here's the good news. It's an incredible good news. Jesus says, behold, I make all things new. Jesus died on a cross for our sin and our self-slavery, and he rose from the dead to give us eternal life, redeemed purpose, real lasting love, and boldly giving us evangelistic fruit that lasts. He gives us a testimony of his grace in which he does the atoning work, and we get the blessing. Isn't that incredible? We get to be part of the eternal work of Christ's love in other people's lives. And every time we share our testimony with believers or unbelievers, Christ is exalted. It's so good. And so I invite you to trust Christ today and to meditate on the testimony that he has given you to share and maybe go home and work on it and practice with each other so you're ready to share with somebody providentially that God brings in your life. It will, as Paul says to Philemon, it will encourage you more than anyone else. You know, last week we heard Jesus saying to Doubting Thomas in Andrew's sermon, here's what Jesus says to Thomas Doubts. He says, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Beloved, that's us. The apostles saw Jesus. Thomas saw Jesus. His family saw him and were completely won over. And even his enemy, Paul, saw him and they all believed. How blessed is your testimony that you have not seen him and yet you believe. Now that's a testimony we're sharing. And that, my friends, is the glorious grace of the gospel. Stand for prayer. Our Father, where do we start? You've done so much. You've loved us so well. 
like the psalmist who makes lists of the things that you have done in creation and redemption and forgiveness. Lord, you've done everything necessary for our salvation. Getting us ready, opening our eyes, changing our hearts, giving us a new life in Christ Jesus, causing us to believe, taking away the obstacles in our unbelief, showing your grace at every step, giving us purpose in life, taking away our fears, and giving us eternal hope. So we praise you this morning for that work in us. And our prayer is really simple, that the application of that meditation would lead to a testimony that we would be willing to share and share often. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.